Recently, Match.com put out a new commercial featuring Satan sitting bored in his throne 11 months ago until a notification pops up on his phone indicating a match. Waiting under a bridge in the rain, he meets a young woman named 2020, and they hit it off instantly. In the following scene, set to Taylor Swift's song, Love Story, we see their relationship blossom. Picnics in empty sports stadiums, exercising in empty gyms, stealing toilet paper from public restrooms, and taking a selfie in front of a dumpster fire. As meteors come barreling to earth, Satan says, I just don't want this year to end, with 2020 responding, who would? The commercial closes with, make 2021 your year. I typically wouldn't have chosen a Mash.com commercial featuring Satan to open my first sermon, but it's a good commercial. You should look it up later. Um, but what that commercial takes lightly is a really heavy subject for a lot of people in the world, and certainly most of the people in our country. It's been a hard year. We've had isolation, division, sickness, financial hardship, uncertainty around childcare and schooling, and that's just scratching the surface. Many of us have had our faith tested, or we've attempted to comfort others who are wondering how to live out their faith in those circumstances. And let's be honest, for a lot of people, 2021 is not going to be better. But what I hope that you heard in the reading just now, and also what you're going to hear and pray over during our time later this morning, that you can be encouraged to place your faith outside of your circumstances. We went through Philippians as a church back during quarantine, and Pastor Kevin actually preached an excellent sermon on this, um, on this very passage, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Uh, but today we're going to take a slightly different focus on this passage than we did um, a number of months ago, as we set aside some time for corporate prayer together um, later after the sermon. So what I want us to be able to taste and see in this passage is that we can stand firm in the Lord through every circumstance by uniting ourselves to him in prayer to exhibit joy, reasonableness, and peace. Now, just as an intro, Paul begins these verses by exhorting the Philippians to stand firm in their faith. We don't have time to give a full backstory to the book right now, but these are people who were close brothers and sisters to Paul and who cared deeply for him. They suffered persecution at the hands of both the Roman people and the Jewish people in Philippi. And we can see Paul's own love and devotion to the Philippians in that first verse, calling them brothers whom he loves and whom he longs for, those who are his joy and his crown. You can really just feel his affection and care for these people. He then addresses a specific situation in the church where two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who were partners in the gospel with him, have fallen into conflict that threatened to break up the unity of that church. Paul exhorts the church to come around those women, reminding them that they have labored together in the gospel and that they, along with the rest of the believers in Philippi, have a secure and eternal salvation in Christ. To promote unity in the church and that they'd stand firm in the Lord, Paul then encourages the Philippians and by the Holy Spirit, us, to be united to Christ in prayer with joy, reasonableness, and peace. So let's start by seeing how Paul encourages us to be united to Christ in prayer with joy. In verse 4, it reads, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This is a recurring word in the letter, so it's important to know what that joy is. And it's more than just happiness. It's independent of your situation, and it has deep, deep roots. Let's take a look at another epistle where the apostle James considers joy in the light of trials. In James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Listen to that. He's not saying that we can have joy despite the suffering. He's saying that we can have joy because of suffering, and that it produces a steadfastness in our faith that contributes to our sanctification. 
Joy is not just an emotion that we feel. It's not happiness that can be dependent on the situation, um, whether it's good or it's bad. But it's an anchoring of our hearts in the knowledge of God's goodness, power, and care for us. But it should still inspire our hearts to take comfort in the fact that trials work to draw us into deeper relationship and trust in God. The Westminster Catechism, which is a tool that's been used by the church for um, some centuries to teach believers rich truths about God, it goes as far to say that our chief end is joy. The very first question and answer of the catechism is, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Jonathan Edwards goes even farther than that and ties those things together, saying that God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. So to say it another way, it's good to see and understand God's goodness, but the act of rejoicing in it, of tying our hearts to the truth and resting in it, that is what brings God glory. He's concerned about our hearts. This joy places our contentment in a place that our circumstances cannot touch. It reminds us that in a world broken by sin, through selfishness, disease, corruption, and war, we have, as Romans 8 says, a God who works all things out for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's not a joy that merely looks beyond this year to a new start in 2021. It's a lasting contentment that rejoices in God's sovereignty and goodness amidst the ruins and brokenness of 2020. Church, when we're confronted with hard things, let's remember that not only has Christ eternally secured our salvation, but that he's promised to be with us and reward us for the trials that we experience right here and right now. And let's place our joy in him. So we've seen how God equips us to stand firm in our faith by seeking contentment and lasting joy in him. Now let's see what it means to be united to Christ in reasonableness. Paul moves on in verse 5 to exhort the Philippians to let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The word reasonableness doesn't have a direct translation in English, but other translations use words like gentleness, a gentle spirit, good sense, or forbearance. So we can take two different characteristics from those words. We have on one hand a soundness to our words, and on the other hand a charity to our words. So first, we're to be a people whose words are sound. That's to say that we need the content and the timing of our words to be grounded in good sense. Because we believe in a God who's created everything and is himself the definition of what is true and goodness and worthy and loving, we should be committed to seek out and speak true and good and worthy and loving things about his people and about his creation. So what would it say about our God if we're content to simply share or retweet or just forward accusations or um, stories that we haven't checked on social media without taking the time to consider if our words are going to build people up and point them to the God of truth and love? Our current age tells us that on every topic, our voice has to be heard, that our opinion has to be shared and acknowledged, and that those who don't agree with us aren't just wrong, that they're bad for being wrong. And it's hard not to get caught up in that polarizing environment and forget that you're speaking to God's image bearers. Brothers and sisters, it's not exhibiting soundness in our speech, and that's not Christ-like. Proverbs, on the other hand, speaks directly to what sound words look like. Let's take a look at just three passages that speak to the timing and the content of our words. They'll be up on the screen. First, we have Proverbs 10, uh, verses 19 through 21. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. Or Proverbs 15, verses 1 through 2. A soft answer turns away wrath, 
but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the words, the mouth of fools pour out folly. And then my favorite, Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. I think there's nothing that speaks more than to the timing of our words than when to just stop talking. Um, And these are excellent reminders for myself here too. We need to think carefully about when to speak and that our lips are feeding many and life-giving to the people around us. The next thing is that our reasonableness needs to be charitable. As we started regathering back in July, Pastor Clint encouraged us as a church to think the best of other people when it came to decisions whether we should or should not wear a mastering services. We always have encouraged it for the sake of health, but we know there's a variety of reasons that people choose not to wear masks. And so we ask people to think the best and to treat others lovingly and kindly. And that's, that's a hard thing. We've seen how that's not played out well in our culture. There's been violence, harsh words over this exact topic, but it has been so encouraging to me to not hear the murmurs of discontent or cross eyes or harsh words about people who choose not to wear a mask. And that is just a praise to God for his spirit's work in our church that we don't look like the world in that way. We're interacting with people who have been made in the image of God, which Pastor Clint also fleshed out back at the start of our Genesis study. And because of that, we need to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ with our words and approach those whom we think are wrong with a desire to make peace, just as Christ did when he died for us while we are still enemies with God. Look at Romans 12, verses 14 to 18. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, I think we can pretty safely say that you can find the opposite of what this verse is exhorting us to on the internet. While the internet may have been created with the desire to connect people across great distances and foster understanding and empathy among different people with different backgrounds, it is quickly devolved from there. It just takes a quick glance at the comments on a YouTube video, the replies to a tweet, or the thread on a Facebook post to see that people have started to care more about being right than to understand and care for the people that they're conversing with. Church family, I pray that this would not be true of us. Your identity is not found in being right. You're loved by the God who died to save you when you are not only intellectually wrong, but morally repugnant. He redeemed us. He taught us where to find that which is good, true, and beautiful. And he gave us a righteousness that we don't deserve. So please, church, extend that same gentleness and charity to others. The Lord is coming to judge everything we've said, done, and thought. So let's be different from the world in our communication and respond thoughtfully with the grace and patience of the God who extended grace and patience to us. So far, we've seen how we can stand fast in our faith by being united to Christ in prayer, exhibiting joy and reasonableness. So let's look next to peace. As Paul continues to challenge and encourage the church at Philippi that the Lord is at hand, he connects the ideas of anxiety, prayer, and peace. Verses 6 and 7 read, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So let's start by looking at anxiety. It's an intense panic or worry about an event with an uncertain outcome. Just to give one purely hypothetical example of a situation with an uncertain outcome that might inspire anxiety, 
You could take an engineer who took a single technical writing course in all four years of college, teaching him to write in the passive voice, and who sells industrial adhesives for a living, who then agrees to write and preach a sermon. It's clearly hypothetical, it's not talking about me, but maybe you can consider some examples from your own lives. But the irony that this process gave me anxiety while preaching on anxiety itself was not lost on me. Satan loves to ask us, did God really say? And then cause us to double guess his promises. And I do want to say before going forward that for some it's a powerful emotion, anxiety, but for others it's a debilitating medical condition. So for those of you who do struggle for anxiety medically, I just want to say that it's not my purpose to give you a trite answer or to heap guilt on those who require counseling or medical treatment for not pulling yourselves up. Medical care is a gift of God's healing and a common grace to humanity, both believer and non-believer alike. And so please don't hear me say to you that you just need to try harder. There is grace um, and forgiveness and love and healing um, in Christ. But for many of us, that feeling of anxiety over the uncertain has exposed our desire to provide for ourselves rather than to rely on him. So how does Paul tell us to address this anxiety? In verses 6 and 7, God calls us to bring our fears and anxieties and lay them before him in prayer. When we do that, he promises to give us his peace. We'll get to prayer and supplication and thanksgiving in a moment, but let's focus on the remedy for the anxiety, which is the peace of God. The concept of peace in the Bible is not just the absence of conflict, but it carries the connotations of wholeness and completeness. And I don't want us to miss that because the absence of conflict is stuck in your situation. Whether or not there is conflict is often outside of your control. But the wholeness and completeness is something that is entirely outside of our circumstances and we can find completely in Christ. So let's listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The God of the universe not only made himself human to come down and save us from our sin, but he openly offers for us to come to him with our burdens and gives us rest for our souls. He gives us his final salvation and the promise of sanctification, of becoming holy. What better relief to our anxiety in uncertain times is there than a loving and an all-powerful God who's promised to make us whole in Christ by the Holy Spirit, regardless of our circumstances? So therefore, panic and alarmism is not the province of a believer. Where we serve a sovereign God who's called us to bring the gospel to bear on a lost world and has simultaneously assured us of his ultimate success in doing so. Just as I had to lean into the truth that God's acceptance and love is guaranteed in Christ as I prepared for the sermon and now, I hope and pray that you can do the same. So let's find our peace and wholeness in him together and let that be a testimony to the world around us in Christ that the victory is already won. So I hope that you've been comforted that empowered by the spirit in Christ, we can exhibit joy, reasonableness, and peace in every circumstance. And in a moment, we're going to pray over those three things in groups. But before we do, and I know, I'm sorry, I hate the fake, and finally, and then going on another five or ten minutes after the final point, um, I've sat in those chairs listening to Clinton Kevin do the same. I'll try to keep it short. Um, I did not alliterate my points, though. You will notice that joy, reasonableness, and peace do not start with the same letter. So I did my best. Um, so I want to look at verse 6 in more detail, focusing on the way that Paul guides us to come to God in prayer. 
He says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Paul mentions two different things about prayer here. We have supplication and thanksgiving. So first on supplication. There are a lot of ways that my children ask me for things. Those of you who are or have been parents will be very familiar with them. They're the demands of entitlement. You have the flattery and empty promises of manipulation. And you also have, I think, every parent's favorite, genuine requests, trusting that you are good as a parent and that you love them. Now, I used to be good at identifying when my girls are good at buttering me up with compliments and battered eyelashes. I have three of them. Um, But those days are quickly disappearing. It's amazing how quickly that we as humans learn to try to work the system and get our desired outcome. They're getting good at it at six months, two, and four. Watch out for the two-year-old. At times, we think that's how we can manipulate God, but that's not how supplication works. Supplication is an earnest and humble pleading born out of a humble heart and a trust that we have a good father. God isn't going to be deceived by our words or our appearances or our actions. He looks at the heart. We can't bargain or negotiate our desired outcome, and God doesn't even promise that he's going to give us what we want. That'd often be a disaster. But God promises that he knows how to give good things to those who ask him. Matthew 7, 9 through 11 says, this is Jesus talking, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We can come to God in prayer boldly, knowing that God is going to answer those who come to him in humble supplication, trusting that God's ultimately going to lift up his people. The second aspect that Paul mentions is thanksgiving. It might seem obvious, but thanksgiving is generally being grateful for something that's already happened in the past. And that gratitude is woven throughout the Old and the New Testament. You have many of the Israelite ceremonies designed to commemorate and to celebrate and thank God for his faithfulness. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Booths, and the Feast of First Fruits are all examples of God telling the Israelites, look back at these times in your history when I was faithful to you and remember my goodness as an encouragement for them to continue to trust and celebrate his faithfulness. And another way that we've seen Thanksgiving woven into the Bible is how God announces himself. He says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we've not gotten to those guys yet in our Genesis study. We'll pick that up um, in the next year. But these guys are not paragons of virtue. They screwed up a lot. And that God was faithful to those guys is a reminder to the Israelites that God is going to be faithful and worthy of our thanks and praise despite our own brokenness. Thanksgiving isn't just an add-on that we should include to honor God. It's the foundation of our faith in God. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans 1.21 when talking about how we fell away from God. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It was a lack of gratitude that a few verses later, he says, God gave them up to their sin because they exchanged the truths about God for a lie and worshiped and served creators rather than the uh, creatures rather than the creator. Gratitude is an essential part of honoring God rightly and keeping our own pride in check as we remember his faithfulness in spite of our own sin and failure. It's also an incredible inspiration that God is going to continue to be faithful to us, even as he's proven himself over and over again in our own lives and in the record of scripture. Now, I think there's no better way to close this morning than with 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Paul again says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So church, we're going to break up into groups and spend some time praying together in a moment. Um, and I just ask you as we pray over joy, reasonableness, and peace, that you would thank God. You'd take time um, with each one to just spend time thanking God, um, coming to him in supplication, confident that God's going to empower you to stand firm in your faith with joy, reasonableness, and peace. Let's pray.